Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to Oral Delights, show 163. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. A fine morning this time, so no worries there. I hope you enjoy what you're about to listen to because we have some fantastic short stories and some great interviews. I'll tell you what's coming up on today's show. There's a book out at the moment by Charles Yu called How to Live Safely in a Science Fiction Universe. If this book doesn't make the Hugo Ballad, I'll eat my hat. (laughs) It is fantastic. I've got a great interview with Charles all about this book. It is just amazing. Then we have main fiction coming up, which is The Magician and the Maid and Other Stories by Christy Yant. This is coming out in John Joseph Adams' new anthology, The Way of the Wizard, which is just a fantastic anthology. It has got packed full with amazing writers. So we've got a story by Christy Yant. And Christy, as you know, is one of the narrators on Starship Sova. So that is an amazing little kind of club we've got going on there. Christy and John, thank you so much for this. Next up, we have Morgan Saletta with his Everything Fact article. This time it's about the canals of Mars, so it's just fantastic that. A great little article. Morgan, thank you. Next up, we have an interview with a great new writer that's kind of burst onto the scene there, Saladin Ahmed. And straight after Saladin's interview, we have his main fiction, which is entitled The Faithful Soldier Prompted. So if you ask me, that is a fine show. Before we dip our toes in there, just a few little mentions and a few little things. That's it for the big hardback signature the £89 book that's gone. There's one left, actually, and I've took it off the thing, and we're going to put it up. We're going to auction. I'll do something with it, but I'll, I'll get to that you know, a few months or a few weeks down the line. This is where I'm just after as well some thoughts and some ideas because this is how Starship Sova runs. It's purely on your ideas and you know you get you send me the idea and if I like it, yes, it, I normally kind of run it within within a few weeks. So this is it. We're coming up to the new year and I just want some ideas. Do you know what I mean? What do you want on the show? Have you got some skills? You know, it doesn't have to be a fact article. You know, look at D there. He came in. We did the volume one and two, and now that's kind of up and running. If you've got something that you think, you know, the sofa would benefit from kind of my skill, my expertise, my ideas, honestly, drop us a line. Like I say, the new year's coming in, and, you know, you've got to kind of stay on top of the game. Do you know what I mean? We are the Hugo winning podcast there, and there's, there's all these kind of podcasts and shows coming out and magazines coming out, and it's only through your help. So if you've got some ideas, you know, I've got some great little things bubbling around that you know i'm working on which will hopefully come into the new year as well you'll see some ideas of mine but if you've got an idea honestly you know and it doesn't cost (laughs) 
that's the main thing. But if you've got an idea, honestly, even if you think, nah, Tony wouldn't use my skills, I don't. Get in touch, man. Honestly, get in touch. So let's kick off with our first little section on today's show. There's a book out. You might have seen it. It's. I'll describe the cover. It's the cover is just what this is. What captures you as well. It's just basically a load, a million different little ray guns, zap guns, and then the title of the book: How to Live Safely in a Science Fiction Universe. I'm about halfway through it now, and I just love it. Honestly, if this book doesn't get on the Hugo list, you know what I mean. There's something. There's some justice going wrong in the world because it is a cracking book. It's got overlays of like Kirk Vonnegut. It is just. It's funny. It's sad. You know, it's there's poignant bits in it as well. I'm loving it, and I just wanted to have a little chat with Charles Yu. So we have the author of this fantastic "How to Live Safely in a Science Fiction Universe," Charles Yu. Hello, sir. Hello, Tony. Thanks for having me on the Starship Sofa. Yes, now a bit like your book. We've been back in time and everything. We've done this once. We've been down this road once before. So, Charles, <laughs> sorry about that. No, no, it seems fitting. Think, <laughs> it, uh... it actually does, doesn't it? You know what I mean? I was thinking. Oh. <laughs> so we try we try this interview, and it, it, it the one the one big wire I was telling Charles before the one big wire wasn't plugged in. So we're going to have another bash, Charles. You wrote this honestly stunning book, "How to Live Safely in a Science Fiction Universe." Tell us a little bit about the actual book without giving away the ending. Sure, sure. So it's uh, the book is about a guy named Charles Yu, who is a time machine repairman, and he lives in a place called Minor Universe 31, which is described as a damaged, sort of incomplete universe where characters who are um, who have sort of been kicked out of their own stories um, sort of wander around here looking for new stories to join, um, and, and there's, uh, in, in this universe, Charles is, um, he helps customers who rent time machines. Um, and, and he also ends up getting sort of stuck in a time loop himself and ends up having to go back into his childhood to, to look for his father. So the basic gist of the book there. You know, and I was I mentioned before as well, when I sat down, because I'm like probably about halfway through there now, honestly, Charles, your writing is so crisp and clear. It just feels, you know, even the style of it, as if you've sat down and it's just, it came out in a weekend. Now, is it is it that <laughs> easy to write? No, no, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> each word is like, uh, took blood out of my, you know, blood and sweat and it was pretty excruciating and, um, for better or worse, I, I've, you know, I, I do think it, it's a pretty plain style, but it's a kind of cultivated, uh, the cultivated plainness. It, it doesn't come out that way. It comes out very garbled and then I have to <laughs> try to smooth it out. Is that how... Because you've, you've also got, am I right in thinking, you've got a collection of short stories out a couple of years ago. Is that how you're writing, even for the, the short stories as well, every word is a labour of love to get onto the screen? <laughs> I don't know, labour of love. I think uh, painful experience. <laughs> I, I think that's one reason why my, my, work, my stories and my novel are pretty short. Is um, <clears throat> I, I tend to have this... Uh, I'm not one of those writers, and I, I, I do think they exist. I, I know some who... Who, it just seems to flow. The paragraphs flow, and, and I, for me, every everything is just is it's like, it's like metal work. I really have to hammer it out, and um, 
it does not, I have to extract it from my head. It doesn't, it doesn't want to come out on its own. And when it comes out, it's, um, it's not pretty. So yeah, I have a book of short stories called Third Class Superhero. And, uh, that book took on and off about, uh, three years to write those stories. This novel took more like eight or nine months. So it went a lot faster, but again, it was, it was pretty painful. So just out of curiosity then, Charles, you know, when you, you like you say, you, you write this book, is your first draft completely different, really, to your final draft? Yes. Yeah, my, <laughs> my first draft, uh, I mean, I, my very first draft, and I called it the negative, negative one draft, because I figured when it was done, it was still probably two drafts away from being worthy of called even a first draft. So <laughs> I, I wrote... I wrote a negative one draft, and I actually wrote something called the zero draft, which was the first thing I showed to anybody. Um, and then, again, after that, I revised that. And the first draft, still quite a mess, but actually was in sort of the shape of a book, you know, lumping and, and kind of horrible-looking, but it, that started to approach what you see, you know, what, what ended up being published. But still, it was pretty, you know, pretty pretty awful and it, it didn't have much of a narrative arc it was just this guy sort of wandering around in time you know when you, you come to see the, the, i'm just curious here as well you know when you come to your final draft uh, are you completely a hundred percent happy with it i know in, i'm not saying that it's not you know completely a hundred percent perfect i'm just saying for you personally right. could you maybe t- tweak you know fiddle again with it and change your word or is there a time when you think right that's it forget it it's finished <laughs> no, definitely not. That is never that. If I ever had that feeling, I'm sure I would be. I don't know how that feeling would happen because I mean, I, even today, I look at. I mean, I, when I did some, I did some readings here in the U.S. and um, I mean, I, as I was reading out loud, I, you know, I would constantly <laughs> wish I could be changing it as I was reading it. I mean, I, I would, so there's definitely on the small scale, definitely sentences where I'm, I'm wishing I, I you know nailed it, you know, picked a better word or, or phrased it a little bit better. And then the bigger scale, there's still also parts that I just, I wish I could, you know, have structured a bit better. So, um, and, and I think that's, you know, I mean, that's just the nature of it. it, it at some point, yeah, I, my editor, Tim O'Connell, and I had to just say, that's enough. <laughs> but but uh, we did go through it a lot of times, for better or worse. So we're sort of approaching the limit of, you know, what it can be. It's, not obviously not nearly perfect, but um, you know it, it has its own limitations. But within those limitations, we're trying to get it to you know as close to what it could be as as we could. That makes any sense? Oh yes, no. It's uh, it's just nice to to know how much you actually you know because if you, when you do read it, it just flows and it just comes so perfect. But yet to, to see the other side of it, you know, your side of it, where it's just been probably you know it's not a very nice, pleasant place to to be. It's 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 quite remarkable, you know. So when I do read it though, or when I'm reading it. Charles, I'm I'm very much you know getting Kirk Vonnegut coming to us through this these words. Is he an influence on you? Yes, uh, Vonnegut definitely, and in particular Slaughterhouse Five, as you probably would guess, you know, based on sort of the time, the the idea of a person who's not bound by sort of straight chronological living here, and so um, that book was a huge influence, and I, I went back to it a lot while writing it, and um, you know, it's. Um, I think also I, I I looked I looked in general to 
lots of sort of, you know, time travel ideas and stories and, and tried to steal what I could from them. Not so much to, um, to structure this, but as a reference, because there have been so many time travel stories. And so um, I was trying to play a little bit with, with conventions of time travel stories and also um, kind of um, pay a little, you know, homage to, to, to all the time travel stories that, that have been out there, you know, and, and ones that I've grown up enjoying and, and that sort of thing. Now I'm just rambling, so I hope you'll cut this part out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, it's, you know, you, you, you kind of, you read it, you know, and you, you have made, you set out your stall pretty much early on to say you can't change the past. Was that a, a definite thing you had to get that done, or was this just when you were writing it, you know, in this kind of turmoil of writing it, that, that was the best avenue to go down? Yeah, I mean, I that was... Um... That was something I settled on pretty early for two reasons. One, it, it you know there was just too many, there's too much freedom in a time travel story unless you impose some constraints on it. I think, and you know, different people have approached it different ways, and this was, you know, one way to approach it is this kind of, um, this you have to respect the the, uh, the the chronology of what's happened before, otherwise you get shifted into a different universe. So that that was from a practical and writing perspective, something that I adopted pretty early on. And it, it also worked with the father, the, you know, the main emotional story, which is this father-son story, because Charles Yu, the son, is, is going to look in the past for his father, um, you know, and, and in, in doing so, he, he basically travels to his own memories. You know, and this is a time, time machine that's powered by, um, you know, by grammar. And, and, and so, you know, we're talking about a pretty sort of metaphorical form of time travel. Um, and, and so the book is a lot of a sort of a meditation on, on memory and regret. And, you know, that all works much better if you can't change the past. I mean, if you could change the past, then it would be quite a different book. So for, for those sort of two reasons, the practical and the thematic, uh, I, I decided pretty early on that, you know, that would be rule number one of this, of this universe. Tell you what I'm dying to find out as well, Joel, is why name your main protagonist after yourself? Do you mean why 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 have this protagonist Charles you? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it, that's the the real the truth is I, I, I couldn't come up with a, a good name for, for the character and I wish there were a better answer, but it's not. And uh you know it, it at first, it, it definitely felt like a placeholder. I, I was like, there's no way I'm going to leave that name in there. But then the story formed around the fact that this character has this name. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, it, it takes on this kind of metafictional aspect. Once, once you realize, oh, this character has the same name as the author, there's, you know, and, and this universe itself is sort of self-consciously science fictional, by which I mean... The characters in Universe 31 are aware that they're science fictional in nature, that they're in this kind of story space, right? And so, because of, um, because of that aspect, having the character have this name that makes you wonder, well, is this partly autobiographical? Is this, um, you know, is the author telling us things from, you know, that are brought in from the real world? That took on a kind of resonance. And once that happened, I couldn't really pull it out. But, Sometimes I wish I could, and I, I certainly won't name any more characters, you know, after myself, I promise, right here. Uh, right right now, I'm making that commitment never to name another character after myself. But uh, 
better or worse, this, you know, that's what happened with this one. Is this, Charles, is this a standalone book or is there going to be another one in the same universe or is, is there any more of your work in this same universe? Um, that's, a, that's a question that I'm going to try to dance around. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> uh, and it's, I haven't written anything else in this universe yet, but there are things that I wish I had explored more from this book. Um, I mean, not to say that I wish they had made it into this book necessarily, but there are there's little corners of this universe and characters and concepts that I could see trying to do something else with. I don't think the whole entire novel, because I think, you know, this is, this to me feels finished and it feels, you know, it is what it is and it's not perfect, but it's, it, the loop was, you know, the loop is what it is. The time loop is what it is. And, so in that sense, I, I couldn't see doing revisiting it again in this form, but I, I have some ideas around maybe doing something um, in a kind of serial format with maybe short stories or maybe even, I don't know, in my graphic form or something um, with sort of, it wouldn't be related to Charles U, but it could be set in this Universe 31. So that's me dancing around and <laughs> give you a non-answer answer. Uh, <laughs> well, that's that's per- that's a perfect answer. That I tell you what I do love, okay. thank you, Charles. In in this is you've got diff- you know some names and I'm almost thinking are these made up? You know I, I picked a couple of them out. Wave function collapser. What a great name this is. And a six-cylinder gamma drive built on a core physics engine. Now. Is, that's again a bit like Vonnegut. He just makes these kind of names up, you know, and put and it's science fiction, and it just sounds right. Have you done that as well, or do, are these, you know, is a wave function collapser something that is in the real world? Right. Well, I mean, there is something called wave function collapse, and I won't pretend to understand it at all. So I won't even. But I mean, I, I believe it's a term and a concept from quantum mechanics. But I don't think there's actually something that. I mean, a wave function collapser as a kind of, <laughs> you know, appliance. <laughs> the time machine obviously doesn't exist. Um, but, yeah, most of the words in there that don't make any sense, don't make any sense because they're not real words, and yeah, or they're not real sort of terms. I, what I did was I, I, I would take, you know, I, I would read, you know, science or scientific papers or just things written for, for you know, non-scientists mostly, and, and take the terms that I... You know that where the language just felt like it had some kind of, you know, a little bit of poetry to it. I don't know a better way to say it, but it, and I know that the scientific term itself means something specific, and that you know, for me to try to extract some meaning from it, some literary meaning, is is abusing the science. And I and I, I don't pretend that you know I that these scientific concepts have some metaphorical meaning, but. Just on the on the word level, I enjoyed taking some of these scientific words and kind of smashing them together with with my grammar, you know, the science of grammar, this grammar based time travel, and seeing what kind of weird vocabulary could could come out of that. And that's that was one of the first things I started doing and, and messing around with and writing it. And that it was that was sort of fun with me. That sort of drove the uh, that drove the writing a bit in the beginning was was inventing these words. Well, that's actually, you know, again, from my side, of the, you know, the reader's side of it, that's what's fun as well, you know, being a reader and, and coming across these sayings because it just, honestly, it just makes you smile even out, you know, out loud. It's just smiling because you just think, wow, these surely can't be, you know, 
devices in the real world, but yet, like you say, there is obviously something of a, a, a wave function collapse, you know, so well done to, for making, making my idea with that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've also got what I, what I thought was a, a great idea, is like operating systems that have got like a, a personal relationship with the you know, with the kind of the, the protagonist. Do you think maybe in the future that is a, a possibility for all of them? Yeah. I think, yeah, I, I, I do think it's, it's possible. I mean, on some level, we already have it. I mean, if you were, um, you know, if you were to have fallen asleep 20 years ago and woken up today and see, you know, could see what software is capable of now, it probably just, it would feel like science fiction, right? I mean, even just a few years ago, you know, we've, from to, to what we've got now is pretty amazing. So, I mean, who knows? I, I don't feel like we're that far from um, from software that could, you know, reflect your own neuroses and reflect your own um, idiosyncrasies and know you, you know, maybe better than you know yourself. Which is a scary thought, but um, but also... When you, look, when uh, you, you know, when you do you look know. at it like that, you, you're quite right. You know, I think you mentioned the last time about the, the things in we're getting with spam emails, very close to, you know, our own sometimes personal lives, and it's 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 getting nearly there now. Yeah, yeah. It makes me want to be more careful in my online searching, too. <laughs> <laughs> Some computer out there, or lots of computers out there probably understand, you know, me better than I uh, will care to admit, but, you know, I... There's no things about me that even I probably don't admit to myself. So I'll just leave it at that. Just <laughs> <laughs> <Get> careful. <laughs> I think you know what I mean. <laughs> what about the the artwork? Because I think as well, it, it's all come together in this novel. Do you know what I mean? It's a, a fantastic cracking story. But the artwork for the cover is just so iconic as well. Did did you have a hand in this in picking the the the, the, uh, the artist for this? Uh, yeah, no, I, I designed all of those. No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, they, I didn't have any hand in it. I, and it's a good thing because I don't have any artistic ability. But um, it was an artist named Adam Simpson um, who I believe was commissioned. You know, I think he's based out of the UK. And he, he the cover for both the US version, which is published by Pantheon, and the UK version published by Corvus is quite similar. It's this array of ray guns. And um, I think, yeah, iconic is a great word for it. I think it's such an amazing cover and it's playful it, you know it really eye-catching but also captures sort of the spirit of the book which i think is playful but also um you know with a with a sort of fun aspect but you know science fictional and um yeah i don't i don't know what else i i, I and now i'm just rambling <laughs> did, did you like it charles the minute you saw this cover did, did you think yes that that does go with that story I did. I, I definitely like. Yes, media when I saw this cover is great. That's it's, um, that's a great um, just side as well. Do you know what I mean? Knowing that you liked it as well, because honestly, I think it does. It that's the the one thing that kind of draws you to a book is the cover, and then you know, like, see, you've got your cracking story in there. What's John? What's your background in? You know. Have you got a, a background of reading science fiction when you were like three year old, or have you come to science fiction <laughs> later on in your life? Or you know, I, I, not quite so early, but I, I did. You know, starting in in grade school in seventh eighth grade, I was reading some science fiction and fantasy. I read uh, a lot of Isaac Asimov, and um, I think partly, you know, I am also a uh, product of you know, a kid who grew up mostly in the 80s where 
there were all these really big science fiction movies, you know, the Star Wars trilogy and Back to the Future and Terminator. And, you know, I, I think I, I'm a product of that generation, definitely, in terms of those those worlds, those universes, those ideas um, form a pretty large part of my sort of, you know, of my um, imagination, um, for better or worse. Now, I don't want to pry too deeply into kind of sales and figures like that, but, you know, this is, am I right in thinking this is your first novel, like first novel? Is this, has it been a success? You know, is it getting about? And I've seen it loads of places on the internet, you know, like giving it reviews and everything like that. Is is it a, are you quite happy and quite pleased with the way it's going? Well, I don't, I think I don't know enough myself to know if it's been a success yet. I hope, you know, I hope that, it's um, you know selling, selling a bit. Uh, that would be great because both you know honestly the the review attention, uh, both in the U.S. and in the U.K. has been overwhelmingly you know surprising and to me just the amount of it and um, and I think that really the credit for that 100% goes to the publicist um, in the U.K. So uh, Rena Gill at Corvus has done an amazing job and in the U.S. it's Josephine Calls at Pantheon. Also done an amazing job, and they've both, you know, gotten this book. It's more than its fair share of attention, I think. <laughs> uh, as you said, it's been on the internet, in print reviews. Um, I can't, I couldn't have dreamed of this, you know, to have to have gotten this many reviews. So I, I do hope uh, the publishers get, get a few copies sold. Yes, well, honestly, Charles, it is a fantastic story. I'm loving every minute of it. Honestly, thank you so much for writing it, and thank you for coming on Starship so far. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, been a pleasure to be on the sofa. Hope to hop on the sofa again sometime in the future. Charles, that would be honestly. You write anything, and I'll get you back on. That was that would be lovely. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Take good care. Thank you. There you go. I will put a link onto that book. If you know what's best for you, go out and get that book. Start pushing it around the the internet and everything. Well, it's actually, you can't help but not see it out there. It's just like what Charles was saying. It's, you know, they've done some, publicists have done some great work there. It is a great book, do you know what I mean? And it's a lovely book and it's just, these things come along every now and again and that's what you need. That's what science fiction needs. Charles, you to kind of write something like that. Charles, that is a cracking book. Thank you so much. From one great book to another, next up is the main fiction. It's called The Magician and the Maid and Other Stories by Christy Yant. And like I say, when you mention Christy Yant's name, you think, yes, narrations, but she has just wrote one hell of a story here. John Joseph Adams just went and snapped this story up there. It's in his new anthology, The Way of the Wizard. And like I say, that's just, just come out yesterday. So if you listen to this show on a Wednesday, it's out now. I'll put a link on again, like the, how to live safely in the science fiction universe. I'll put a link on there. Go straight over and check it out. There is some amazing writers in there. Orson Scott Card, Susanna Clark, Marion Zimmer Bradley, Ursula K. Le Guin, Robert Silverberg, George R. R. Martin. You know what I mean? He's just got so many. And it's like, it's bump up full. It is, there's not just, there's loads of stories in there. Go over to the website. I'll put the link on to the We Are The Wizard website. There's like a whole load of interviews there. John's actually, you know, kind is out there. There's seven actually free stories there, so you can just even go now and have a look at the free stories, you know, and, and download them as well. So 
The Way of the Wizard has just come out. Please pop over there and check it out. This story is narrated by our very own Amy H. Sturgis, who just does a lovely little narration here. Amy, thank you so much. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. The Magician and the Maid and Other Stories by Christy Yant She called herself Audra, though that wasn't her real name. He called himself Miles, but she suspected it wasn't his either. She was young, how young she would not say, beautiful, or so her Emil had told her, and she had a keen interest in stories. Miles was old, tattooed, perverted, and often mean, but he knew stories that no one else knew, and she was certain that he was the only one who could help her get back home. She found him among the artists, makers, and deviants. They called him uncle and spoke of him sometimes with loathing, sometimes respect, but almost always with a tinge of awe, a magician in a world of technicians. They did not know what to make of him. But Audra saw him for what he truly was. There once was a youth of low birth who aspired to the place of king's magician, The villagers scoffed, Emil, you will do naught but mind the sheep. But in his heart, he knew that he could possess great magic. The hedge witches and midwives laughed at the shepherd boy who played at sorcery, but indulged his earnestness. He learned charms for love and marriage, women's magic, but he would not be shamed by it, and for wealth and luck, but none of this satisfied him, for it brought him no nearer to the throne. For that, he needed real power, and he did not know where to find it. He had a childhood playmate named Aurora, and as they approached adulthood, Aurora grew in both beauty and cleverness. Their childhood affection turned to true love, and on her birthday, they were betrothed. That day came when the youth knew he had learned all that he could in the nearby villages and towns. The lovers wept and declared their devotion with an exchange of humble silver rings. With a final kiss, Emil left his true love behind and set out to find the source of true power. It was not hard to meet him once she understood his tastes. A tuck of her skirt, a tug at her chemise, a bright ribbon, new stockings, and dark coal to line her eyes. She followed him to a club he frequented, where musicians played discordant arrangements and the patrons were as elaborately costumed as the performers. She walked past his booth, where he smoked cigarettes and drank scotch, surrounded by colorful young women and effeminate young men. You there, Bo Peep, come here. She met his dark eyes, turned her back on him, and walked away. The sycophants who surrounded him bitched and whined their contempt for her. He barked at them to shut up as she made her way to the door. Once she had rejected him, it was easy. She waited for his fourth frustrated overture before she joined him at his table. So, she said as she lifted his glass to her lips uninvited, tell me a story. What kind of story? A fairy tale, 
What, something with elves and princes and happily ever after? No, she said, and reached across the corner of the table to turn his face toward her. He seemed startled, but complied, and leaned in until their faces were just inches apart. A real fairy tale, with wolves and witches, jealous parents, woodsmen charged with murdering the innocent. Tell me a story, Miles. She could feel his breath against her cheek falter as she leaned ever closer and spoke softly into his ear. Tell me a story that is true. Audra was footsore and weary when they reached the house at dawn. She stumbled on the stone walk and caught Miles's arm to steady her. Are you sure you don't need anything from home? he asked as he worked his key in the lock. At his mention of home, she remembered again to hate him. Quite sure, she said. He faced her, this time with a different kind of appraisal. There was no leer, no suspicion. He touched her face, and his habitual scowl relaxed into something like a smile. You remind me of someone I knew once, long ago. The smile vanished, and he opened the front door, stepping aside to let her pass. His house was small, and filled with a peculiar collection of things that told her she had the right man. Many of them were achingly familiar to Audra. A wooden spindle in the entryway, wound with golden thread, a dainty glass shoe on the mantel, almost small enough to fit a child. In the corner, a stone statue of an ugly, twisted creature, one arm thrown protectively over its eyes. What a remarkable collection, she said. And forced a smile. It must have taken a long time to assemble. Longer than I care to think of. He picked a golden pear off the shelf and examined it. None of it is what I wanted. He returned it to the shelf with a careless toss. I'll show you the bedroom. The room was bare, in contrast with the rest of the house. No ornament hung on the white plaster walls, no picture rested on the dresser. The bed was small, though big enough for two, and covered in a faded quilt. It was flanked by a table on one side and a bent wood chair on the other. Audra sat stiffly at the foot of the bed. The mattress creaked as Miles sat down beside her. She turned toward him with resolve and braced herself for the inevitable. She would do whatever it took to get back home. She had done worse and with less cause. He leaned in close and stroked her hair. She could smell him, sweet and smoky, familiar and foreign at the same time. She lifted a hand to caress his smooth head where he lingered above her breast. He caught her wrist and straightened, pressed her palm to his cheek. Eyes closed, forehead creased in pain, then abruptly dropped her hand and rose from the bed. If you need more blankets, they're in the wardrobe. Sleep well, he said, and left Audra to wonder what had gone wrong and to consider her next move. Aurora was as ambitious as Emile, but of a different nature. She believed that the minds of most men were selfish and swayed only by fear or greed. 
In her heart there nestled a seed of doubt that Emile could get his wish through pure knowledge and practice. She resolved in her love for him to secure his place through craft and wile. Aurora knew the ways of tales. She planted the seed of rumor in soil in which it grew best, the bowery, the laundry, anywhere the women gathered. She talked of his power. But word of the powerful sorcerer had yet to reach the king himself, and to get close enough she would need to use a different craft. The hands of guards and pikemen were rougher than Emile's, the mouths of servants less tender. She ignited the fire of ambition in their hearts with flattery, and fanned it with promises that Emile, the most powerful sorcerer in the kingdom, would repay those who supported him once he was installed in the palace. And if she had regrets, as she hurried from chamber to cottage in the cold night air, she dismissed them as just a step on the road toward realizing her lover's dream. Audra woke at midday to find a note on the chair in the corner of the room. In deep black ink and an unpractised hand was written, Stay if you like, or go as you please. I am accountable to only one, and that one is not you. If that arrangement suits you, make yourself at home. M. It suited her just fine. She searched the house. She wasn't sure what she was looking for, but she was certain that any object of power great enough to rip her from her own world would be obvious somehow. It would be odd, otherworldly, she thought, but that described everything here. Like a raven's hoard, every nook contained some shiny stolen object. On a shelf in the library, she found a clear glass apothecary jar labeled East Wind. Thief, she thought. Audra hoped that the East Wind didn't suffer for the lack of the contents of the jar. She would keep an eye on the weather vane and return it at the first opportunity. Something on the shelf caught her eye, small and shining, and her contempt turned to rage. Murderer! She pocketed Emile's ring. Miles seemed to dislike mirrors. There were none in the bedroom, none even in the washroom. The only mirror in the house was an ornate, gilded thing that hung in the library. She paused in front of it, startled at her disheveled appearance. She smoothed her hair with her fingers and leaned in to examine her bloodshot eyes and found someone else's eyes looking back at her. The gaunt, androgynous face that gazed dolefully from deep within the mirror was darker and older than her own. Hello, she said to the magic mirror. I'm Audra. The mirror shook its head disapprovingly. You're right. She admitted, but we don't give strangers our true names, do we? She considered her new companion. The long lines of its insubstantial face told Audra that it had worn that mournful look for a long time. Did he steal you as well? Perhaps we can help each other find a way home. The answer is here somewhere. The face in the mirror brightened, and it nodded. Audra had an idea. Would you like me to read to you? Emile traveled a bitter road in search of the knowledge that would make his fortune. 
By day he starved, by night he froze. But one day luck was with him, and he caught two large, healthy hares before sunset. As he huddled beside his small fire, the hares roasting over the flames, a short and grizzled man came out of the forest, carrying a sack of goods. Good evening, grandfather, Emil said to the little man. Sit, share my fire and supper. The man gratefully accepted. What do you sell? Emil asked. Pots and pans, needles and spices, the old man said. Know you any magic? Emil asked, disappointed. He was beginning to think the knowledge he sought didn't exist, and he was losing hope. What does a shepherd need with magic? How did you know I'm a shepherd? Emil asked in surprise. I know many things, the man said, and then groaned and doubled over in pain. What ails you? Emil cried, rushing to the old man's side. Nothing that you can help, lad. I've a disease of the gut that none can cure, and my time may be short. Emil questioned the man about his ailment and pulled from his pack dozens of pouches of herbs and powders. He heated water for a medicinal brew while the old man groaned and clutched his stomach. The man pulled horrible faces as he drank down the bitter tea. But before long, his pain eased, and he was able to sit upright again. Emil mixed another batch of the preparation and assured him that he would be cured if he drank the tea for seven days. I was wrong about you, the man said. You're no shepherd. He pulled a scroll from deep within his pack. For your kindness, I'll give you what you've traveled the world seeking. The little man explained that the scroll contained three powerful spells. Written in a language that no man had spoken in a thousand years. The first was a spell to summon a benevolent spirit who would then guide him in his learning. The second summoned objects from one world into another, for every child knew that there were many worlds and that it was possible to pierce the veil between them. The third would transport a person between worlds. If he could decipher the three spells, He would surely become the most powerful sorcerer in the kingdom. Emil offered the old man what coins he had, but he refused. He simply handed over the scrolls, bade Emil farewell, and walked back into the forest. Audra filled her time reading to the mirror. The shelves were filled with hundreds of books, old and new, leather bound and gilt edged. Or flimsy and sized to be carried in a pocket. She devoured them, looking for clues. How she got here, how she might get back. On a bottom shelf in the library, in the sixth book of a twelve volume set, she found her story. The illustrations throughout the blue cloth bound book were full of round, cheerful children and curling vines. She recognized some of her friends and enemies from her old life. There was Miska, who fooled the man with the iron head, and whom she had met once on his travels. On another page, she found the fairy who brought the waterfall to the mountain, whom Audra resolved to visit as soon as she got home. She turned the page, and her breath caught in her throat. The Magician and the Maid, the title read. Beneath the illustration were those familiar words, Once upon a time. 
a white rabbit bounded between birch trees toward Audra's cottage. Between the treetops, a castle gleamed pink in the sunset light, the place where her story was supposed to end. Audra traced the outline of the rabbit with her finger, and then traced the two lonely shadows that followed close behind. Two shadows, one her own, and the other, Emile's. Audra was reading to the mirror a story it seemed to particularly like. It did tricks for her as she read, creating wispy images in the glass that matched the prose. She had just reached the best part where the trolls turned to stone in the light of the rising sun when she heard footsteps outside the library door. The mirror looked anxiously toward the sound and then slipped out of sight beyond the carved frame. The door burst open. Who are you talking to? Miles demanded. Who's here? He smelled of scotch and sweat, and his overcoat had a new stain. No one. I like to read aloud. I am alone here all day, she said. Don't pretend I owe you anything. He slouched into the chair and pulled a cigarette from his coach. You might make yourself useful, he said. Read to me. The room was small. And she stood no more than an arm's length away, feeling like a schoolgirl being made to recite. She opened to a story she did not know, a tale called The Snow Queen, and began to read. Miles closed his eyes and listened. Little Kay was quite blue with cold, indeed almost black, but he did not feel it, for the Snow Queen had kissed away the icy shiverings, and his heart was already a lump of ice, she read. She glanced down at him when she paused for breath to find him looking at her in a way that she knew all too well. Finally, an advantage. She let her voice falter when he ran a finger up the side of her leg, lifting her skirt a few inches above her knee. She did not stop reading. It was working. Something in him had changed as she read. Sex was a weak foothold, but it was the only one she had. And perhaps it would be a step toward getting into his mind. He dragged some sharp, flat pieces of ice to and fro and placed them together in all kinds of positions, as if he wished to make something out of them. He composed many complete figures, forming different words. But there was one word he never could manage to form, although he wished it very much. It was the word eternity. He fingered the cord tied at her waist. And tugged it gently at first, then more insistently, he leaned forward in the chair and unfastened the last hook on her corset. Just at this moment, it happened that little Gerda came through the great door of the castle. Cutting winds were raging around her, but she offered up a prayer, and the wind sank down as if they were going to sleep. And she went on till she came to the large, empty hall, and caught sight of Kay. She knew him directly. She flew to him and threw her arms round his neck and held him fast while she exclaimed, "Kay, dear little Kay, I have found you at last." His fingers stopped their manipulations. His hands were still on her. The fastenings held between his fingertips. She dared not breathe. Whatever control she had for those few minutes was gone. She tried to reclaim it, to keep going as if nothing had happened. 
She even dropped a hand from the book and reached out to touch him. His hand snapped up and caught hers. He stood, pulling hard on her arm. Enough. He left the room without looking back. She heard the front door slam. Audra straightened her clothes in frustration and wondered again what had gone wrong. It took only a moment's thought for Audra to decide to follow him. She peered out into the street. There he was, a block away already, casting a long shadow in the lamplight on the wet pavement. Her feet were cold and her shoes wet through. By the time he finally stopped at a warehouse, deep in a maze of brick complexes, he manipulated a complex series of locks on the dented and rusting steel door, and disappeared inside. So this was where he went at night. Not to clubs and parlors as she had thought, but here, on the edge of the inhabited city, to a warehouse only notable for having all its window glass. The windows were too high for her to see into, but the dumpster beneath one of them offered her a chance. The metal bin was slick with mist, and she slipped off it twice. But on her third try, she hoisted herself on top and nervously peered through the filthy glass of the window. In the dim light, she could just make out the shape of Miles, rubbing his hands fiercely together as if to warm them, then unrolling something—paper or parchment—spreading it out carefully in front of him on the concrete floor. He stood and began to speak. The room grew brighter, and a face appeared in front of him, suspended in the air—a familiar face made of dim green light. Audra could see little of it through the dirty glass. She could hear Miles's voice, urgent and almost desperate, but the words he shouted at the thing made no sense to her. She shifted her weight to ease the pain of her knee pressing against the metal of the dumpster, and slipped. She fell and cried out in pain as she landed hard on the pavement. She didn't know if Miles had heard, but she did not wait to find out. She picked herself up, now wet. Filthy and aching, and ran. When she reached the house, she went straight to the library. Audra shifted the books on the shelf so that the remaining volumes were flush against each other, and she hid her book in the small trunk where she kept her few clothes. The mirror's face emerged from its hiding place behind the frame, looking worried and wan. It's my story after all, she told it. I won't let him do any more damage. What if he takes the cottage, the woods? Where would I have to go home to? No, he can't have any more of our story. The language of the scroll was not as impossible as the little man had said. While it was not his own, it was similar enough that someone as clever as a meal could puzzle it out. He applied himself to little else, and before long, a meal could struggle through half of the first spell. But when he thought of arriving home after so long, still unable to execute even the simplest of the three, the frustration in him grew. Surely he thought he should begin with the hardest, for having mastered that, the simpler ones will come with ease. So thinking, he set out to learn the last of the three spells before he arrived home. When Miles finally returned the following evening at dusk, he looked exhausted and filthy, as if he had slept on the floor of that warehouse. 
she met him in the kitchen and didn't ask questions. He brooded on a chair in the corner while she chopped vegetables on the island butcher block, never taking his eyes off her, then stood abruptly and left the room. The hiss and sputter of the vegetables as they hit the pan echoed the angry, inarticulate hiss in her mind. She had been here for days, and she was no closer to getting home. The knife felt heavy and solid in her hand as she cubed a slab of marbled meat. She imagined miles under the knife, imagined his fear and pain. She would get it out of him, how to get home, and he would tell her what he had done to her a meal before the miserable bastard died. Sounds from the next room were punctuated with curses. The crack of heavy books being unshelved made her flinch. Where is it? He first seemed to ask himself, then louder, where? He demanded of the room at large. Then a roar erupted from the doorway. What have you done with it, you vicious witch? A cold wash of fear cleared away her thoughts of revenge. What are you talking about? My book, he said. Where is it? What have you done with it? He came at her hunched like an advancing wolf. They circled the butcher block. She gripped the knife and dared not blink for her fear that he would take a split-second advantage and lunge for her. You have many books. And I only care about one. His hand shot out and caught her wrist, bringing her arm down against the scarred wood with a painful shock. The knife fell from her hand. He dragged her into the library. There, he said, pointing to the shelf where her book had been. Six of twelve. It was there, and now it's not. He relaxed his grip without letting go. If you borrowed it, it's fine. I just want it back. He released her and forced a smile. Now, where is it? You're right, she said. I borrowed it. I didn't realize it was so important to you. It's very special. Yes, she said, her voice low and hard. It is. And with that, she knew she had given herself away. Miles shoved her away from him. She fell into the bookcase as he left the small library and shut the door behind him. A key turned in the lock. It was too late. She rested with her forehead against the door and caught her breath. She tried to pry open the small window, but it was sealed shut with layers of paint. She considered breaking the glass and then thought better of it. She could escape from this house. It was true, but not from this world. For that, she still needed miles. She watched the sun set through the dirty window and tried to decide what to do when he let her out. She heard him pacing through the house, talking to himself with ever greater stridency. But the words made no sense to her. It gave her a headache. The sound of the key in the door woke her. She grabbed at the first thing that might serve as a weapon, a sturdy hardcover. She held in front of her like a shield. Miles stood in the doorway, a long, wicked knife in his hand. Who are you? he finally asked, his eyes narrowed with suspicion. And how did you know? 
someone whose life you destroyed. Liar, thief, murderer. She produced Emile's ring. He seemed frozen where he stood, his eyes darting back and forth between the ring in her hand and her face. I am none of those things, he said. You took all of this. She gestured around the room. You took him, and you took me. And what did you do with the things that were of no use to you? She had been edging toward him while he talked. She threw the book at his arm, and it struck him just as she had hoped. The knife fell to the floor, and she dove for it, snatching it up before Miles could stop her. She had him now, she thought, and pressed the blade against his throat. He tried to push her off, but she had a tenacious grip on him, and he ceased his struggle when the knife pierced his thin skin. She felt his body tense in her hands, barely breathing and perfectly still. You still haven't told me who you are. Where is he? she demanded. Where is who? His voice was smooth and controlled. The man you stole, like you stole me, like you stole all of it. Where is he? You're obviously very upset. Put that down. Let me go, and we'll talk about it. I don't know about any stolen man, but maybe I can help you find him. His voice was calm, soothing, slightly imploring, asking for understanding and offering help. She hesitated. Wondering what threat she was really willing to carry out against an enemy who was also her only hope. She waited a moment too long. Miles grabbed a heavy jar off the shelf and hurled it at the wall. The east wind ripped through the room, finally free. Fatigued and half starved, Emile made his way slowly toward his home. And tried to unlock the spell. Soon he had three words, and then five, and soon a dozen. He would say them aloud, emphasizing this part or that, elongating a sound or shortening it, until the day he gave voice to the last character on the page, and something happened a spark, a glimmer of magic. He had ciphered out the spell. Finally, On the coldest night he could remember, with not a soul in sight, he raised his voice against the howling wind and shouted out the thirteen words of power. As weeks turned into months, the stories of Emile the sorcerer grew, until finally even the king had heard and wanted his power within his own control. But Emile could not be found. The angry vortex threw everything off the shelves. Audra ducked and covered her head as she was pummeled by books and debris. Miles crouched behind the trunk, which offered little protection from the gale. There was a crash above Audra's head. Her arms flew up to protect her eyes. Broken glass struck her arms and legs, some falling away, others piercing her skin. The window broke with a final crash, and the captive wind escaped the room. The storm. Was over. Books thumped and glass tinkled to the ground. 
Audra opened her eyes to the wreckage. Miles was already sifting through the pages and torn covers. No, he said. No, it has to be here. My story has to be here. He bled from a hundred small cuts, but he paid them no mind. Audra plucked shards of dark glass out of her flesh. The shards gave off no reflection at all. A cloud drifted from where the mirror had hung over the wreckage-strewn shelves, searching. On the floor beside Audra's trunk, the lid torn off in the storm. It seemed to find what it was looking for. It slipped between the pages of a blue cloth-bound volume and disappeared. Here, Audra said, clutching the volume to her chest. He scrambled toward her until they kneeled together in the middle of the floor, face to face. Smoke curled out of the pages, only a wisp at first, then more, green and glowing like a sunbeam in a mossy pond, crept out and wrapped itself around both of them. The guide you sought was always here, a voice whispered. Your captive, Emil, and your friend, Aurora. Audra, Aurora, looked at the man she had hated and saw what was there all along. Her Emil, thirty years since he had disappeared, with bald head and graying beard. Miles, who kept her because she looked like his lost love, but who wouldn't touch her in faith to his beloved. Emil looked back at her, tears in the eyes that had seemed so dead and without hope, until now. Now, Emil, speak the words, the voice said, and we will go home. So, should you happen across a blue cloth-bound book, the sixth in a set of twelve, do not look for the magician and the maid, because... It is not there. Read the other stories, though, and in the story of the fairy who brought the waterfall to the mountain, you may find that she has a friend called Audra. Though you will know the truth, it is not her real name. If you read further, you may find Emil as well, for though he never did become the king's magician, every story needs a little magic. <laughs> There you go, don't forget, copyright is Christy Yance. Christy, thank you so much. And John, big thanks for letting Starship Silver play this story. So we move on to Morgan Saletta with his everything. Morgan. Hello and welcome to another episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything, Explorations in Philosophy, Science, and Science Fiction. I'm Morgan Saletta. In the last episode, I spoke about the discovery of Gliese 581G and the history of the idea of other possibly inhabited worlds. Today, I'd like to return to that theme with a specific focus, the planet Mars. Since the Mariner and Viking missions, the surface of the planet Mars and its barren, desertic landscape of red, windswept, and weathered rocks is something that is as much a part of global awareness as the icebergs of Antarctica, the dark, dusty surface of the moon, and the fragile beauty of the Earth seen from space. 
If we are to find life on Mars, it will surely be microbial, and may indeed only be fossil, if ever it existed. Leaving aside for a later date the prospects of colonization and terraforming of Mars, today I would like to look back in time and examine a period when Mars was still mysterious, a world barely resolved by the world's largest telescopes. This was a time when Mars, half seen, half imagined, captured the imagination of our world, sparked one of the best-known debates in the history of science, and inspired generations of science fiction writers who peopled the red planet with exotic races, beautiful princesses, planet-girdling civilizations struggling for survival on a dying planet, and crumbling enigmatic ruins of dead or dying races. In short, I would like to talk to you about the canals of Mars. But before we visit this strange and fascinating debate, which erupted in 1877 and rapidly gained mythical proportions, we need to briefly set the stage and understand its prelude. The planet Mars is one of the brightest objects in the sky, and it has long fascinated the shepherds, shamans, priests, astronomers, and others who gazed at the heavens night after night and watched the curious movement against the stars of this bright reddish wanderer. For the Greeks, it was Ares, the god of war. For the ancient Chinese, it was Ying Huo, the fire planet. One of the most fascinating things about Mars, besides its being one of the brightest objects in the night sky, was its curious retrograde motion. As we now know, of course, as the Earth orbits on its yearly path around the Sun, it passes Mars, which moves more slowly on its 687-day orbit around the Sun. Seen from Earth, the planet Mars moves slowly against the background of stars, then appears to stop before reversing direction, stopping, and once again resuming its normal course. For thousands of years, the retrograde motion of Mars was a sticking point for mathematical models of the sky, leading to the complex Ptolemaic system of epicycles and equants, which were finally abolished by the Copernican Revolution. Indeed, it is this strange movement of Mars that led to the word planet, which comes from the Greek word for wanderer. It is when the Earth catches up with Mars, once every 26 months, that the two planets are said to be in opposition, with the Earth between the Sun and Mars, that the two planets are at their closest, and this is the best time to observe the red planet through a telescope, which, by the 17th century, had improved to the point where astronomers could make out some of the surface features of Mars. In 1664, Giovanni Cassini, for whom the Cassini probe is named, published the first detailed observations of Mars and later established its period of rotation to within three minutes of its actual length. Also in the 17th century, Christian Higgins, who also discovered Saturn's moon Titan, began speculating on the similarities between Earth and Mars and joined the debate on the plurality of worlds, advancing some of the same arguments as his contemporary, Bernard de Fontenelle, about whom I spoke last week. Higgins was able, through his telescope, to observe darker and lighter patches, now known as albedo patches, as well as the polar ice caps of the planet. In the 18th century, the development of the refracting telescope brought out more features of the planet, including seasonal changes of the ice caps, and astronomers like William Herschel, who discovered Uranus in 1781, continued speculation about the Earth-like nature of Mars that Higgins had begun. Mars is a notoriously difficult object to observe, however, and early observers were limited by the resolution of their telescopes. Additionally, the dense, moisture-laden, and constantly changing atmosphere of the Earth makes viewing the planet something which can change from one moment to the next with changes in wind, humidity, and temperature, all affecting viewing conditions, and making the planet, in the words of Robert Markley, author of The Dying Planet, appear, 
even at the best of times, like a quarter shimmering at the bottom of a pool. And yet, at times, the planet appears to leap into view, often only for seconds, giving glimpses of its surface features in a way that the planet Venus never does. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the best time to view Mars is at its opposition, when it is closest to the Earth. And so the story of Martian canals begins, fittingly enough, at just such an opposition, in the year 1877. The Italian astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli was one of many astronomers who turned their telescopes to Mars in September of that year. But what emerged from Schiaparelli's long hours was the most detailed, and optimistic, map of the surface of Mars ever made to that date. In fact, his map, filled in with details rather optimistically observed during later oppositions, was a standard reference in books about the solar system until the space race and the first space probes. But most importantly, it was this map, which showed linear features he termed canali, which gave birth to the great debate about Martian canals. In fact, the word canali is the Italian word for channel, and for Schiaparelli, these were probably natural waterways, though he cautiously admitted that they might be artificial constructs. From the beginning of the debate, most astronomers were highly skeptical of the idea of artificial waterways, and some were skeptical of linear features at all. But the idea fired the imagination of the general public. Public enthusiasm for the idea was largely the work of two men, Camille Flammarion in France, and especially Percival Lowell in the United States. Flammarion was an astronomer and prolific popularizer of scientific ideas. Along with J.H. Roney, Flammarion was also among the first writers to imagine genuinely alien life forms instead of minor variations of terrestrial forms. A firm believer in the plurality of worlds, he was nevertheless cautious in his initial speculations about the Martian canals, though he later became a firm believer. In contrast, Percival Lowell was anything but cautious. Bit by the Martian bug in the early 1890s, this former businessman and diplomat determined to study the planet during the opposition of 1894, and hastily constructed two telescopes in Flagstaff, Arizona, at what would become Lowell Observatory. After making his observations, and confirming in his mind the existence of both the canals and oases on the surface of Mars, he came to a bold conclusion. The Martian canals were the work of an advanced civilization, carrying water from the poles to irrigate the desert. He imagined a planet well further on an evolutionary path shared by the Earth, in which deserts would eventually swallow the whole globe. In the face of this ineluctable future, the Martians had constructed a vast hydrological system to preserve their civilization against the impending entropic doom. And, while met with skeptical derision by many astronomers, Lowell's ideas were splashed across headlines and eagerly devoured by a public anxious to believe. Of course, today the dusty, desertic surface of Mars, wind-blown, inhospitable, and traveled only by robotic rovers, is almost as familiar as our own backyard. But at the time, and given the limitations of technology and the difficulties of observation, it should come as no surprise that otherwise serious men fell prey to optical illusion and optimistic imagination. And the fan of science fiction owes an enormous debt to Schiaparelli, Flammarion, who himself wrote some science fiction, and Lowell. In 1880, Percy Gregg wrote the first scientifically plausible account of a mission to Mars. In Across the Zodiac, the protagonist travels to Mars in a ship named the Astronaut, powered by a sort of anti-gravity called Apergy. Greg's novel is a first in many ways. It is considered the progenitor of the swords and planets subgenre. 
It also features the first alien language, and his use of the word astronaut may be the first in English. In what is probably another first, the unnamed narrator marries a member of the technologically advanced humanoid race he discovers on the planet. Captain Kirk, move over. Though it turns out unhappily for him, as she is killed in the end. The publication in 1895 of Lowell's book Mars had an almost instant effect on science fiction. Mars had already become a popular location for utopian societies, but two remarkable books from this time present a vision of encounters with advanced Martian civilization which remain influential today. H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds is the first truly great work featuring a malevolent alien invasion. In contrast, Kurd Lasvitz's On Two Planets, less well known to the English public, presents an Earth ravaged by the environmental degradation of the Industrial Revolution and a solar-powered Martian civilization in an early cautionary tale regarding the exploitation of nature, but far more than anyone else. It was Edgar Rice Burroughs' Martian novels that dominated the public's interplanetary imagination. While considered pulp fiction, it would be impossible to underestimate the influence of Burroughs' Barsoom and the adventures of his hero, John Carter, on both a generation of science fiction writers and scientists alike, from Arthur C. Clarke to Carl Sagan, who came upon the books at the age of ten and fondly remembered Burroughs' Lowellian vision of, and I quote, ruined cities, planet-girdling canals, immense pumping stations, a feudal technological society. The people there were red, green, black, yellow, or white, and some of them had removable heads, but basically they were human. I didn't realize the chauvinism of making people on another planet like us. I simply devoured what seemed to me the riches of another planet's biology. Indeed, a map of Burroughs Barsoom could be seen hanging outside Sagan's office at Cornell for two decades. And while Mariner 9, the first spacecraft to orbit another planet, changed our vision of the planet Mars forever, it had already become clear that there was too little atmosphere and too little water on the planet to support anything but the simplest of life forms, and that the canals were merely a feature of man's imagination. And so, while the debate about the canals of Mars, and particularly Lowell's grandiose vision of a civilization's struggle against a dying planet, remains fascinating from a historical perspective, it also inspired several generations of scientists and science fiction writers. What was once scientific speculation became mythological, and the world would be a poorer place indeed without the mysterious and enduring vision of the canals of Mars. This has been another episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything, Explorations in Philosophy, Science, and Science Fiction. And I'm Morgan Saletta, signing out. That just gets better and better. Morgan, thank you so much for that. Looking forward to next one, sir. Next up is another interview. This is like a, a writer that's kind of kicking around that's going to be like one of the big hot writers out there. Saladin Ahmed, a fantastic writer, great story writer, and we're lucky enough to get one of his stories well, The Faithful Soldier Prompted. But I just want to, before that, just jump in with a little interview with Saladin. So we have Saladin Ahmed on the phone, the man who has penned that fantastic story. Saladin, nice to have you on board. It's wonderful to be here, thank you. Hey, that's honest, I'm really pleased. Now, as did am I right in thinking you were up for John W. Campbell Award this year? 
Uh, I, I was, yes, um, and uh, was honored to be up for it. Uh, the um, uh, the winner ended up being uh, the wonderful Sean and McGuire, so I couldn't be too uh, upset at, at not coming through, but I was I was honored to be nominated. Well, actually, you know, I was putting my fingers on you. I was hoping for you, so I might have been the kiss of death, because honestly, every time I see it, <laughs> I, was, I was rooting once for Gord Seller, and he didn't win, and then I was rooting for you, and, you, and I was thinking, I might have just put the blockers on Saladin winning this. <laughs> The black cloud. Yeah. So, Saladin, for everyone out there who doesn't know you, how long have you been writing? Well, I've been writing um, poetry and uh, some sort of other various things here and there for uh, a few years. Uh, I've been, I mean, I've been writing since, uh, since I was a kid, really, but uh, publishing, I've been publishing poetry for almost 10 years now. But uh, in terms of kind of seriously... Uh, coming back to genre fiction, which I haven't really written since high school, 35. Uh, I've only been doing that about uh, two years now. My first story was published in 2009, so um, it's, it's pretty recent for me. And, and now I might be, again, apologies if I've got this wrong, are you part of that writer's workshop that's kicking around in New York? The one with... Mark? Yeah, Mercurio Rivera, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, he and I are both members of uh, of Altered Fluid, um, along with uh, N.K. Jemison, uh, Matt Kressel, uh, Paul Berger, um, Eugene Myers, a bunch of other people, um, Tempest Bradford. We're all uh, in, in in the writers group. I'm sort of on a part time basis right now because uh, my wife and I have twin babies uh, at home, and so we're we're both pretty swamped. So I don't get the <laughs> meetings as much as I once did but uh but they're they're an amazing group yeah so that's almost like you know it's it's because there is some talent in there you've just n- named like a, you know a load of writers there with some great talent this is always like a, a, a futurians you know like the next generation <laughs> uh, yeah perhaps <laughs> one hope one hopes that uh, all our names will live uh, live on in, in that manner. <laughs> I don't know. We shall see. Time will tell. <laughs> but they're all incredibly talented. I mean, the story actually that you guys uh, uh, just did um, it was it was pretty broken before they read it. And uh, and uh, uh, Mercurio Rivera in particular, uh, and and Matt Kressel also had some just great suggestions that really uh, really kind of lifted into shape. So I'm I'm thankful that they they got to give it the treatment well this is the thing i love about you know like the short stories and then the kind of the history of them because i've seen your tweets you know and i think you said you'd wrote i don't know how many fantasy stories you wrote one science fiction and tried everywhere to get it you know submitted and it was always coming back to you and then all of a sudden because i've seen i thought oh bloody hell, I'm going to get me, try and get my hands on that. And then didn't you come back to me and say Cat Valenti has picked it up as well for a special for the Apex magazine? Yeah, yeah, I, I was, uh, I mean, I'm very happy that things kind of transpired that way because I like the story, I believe in it. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think that some of its uh, problem with selling had to do with the theism in there, which, uh, you know, it's kind of a, kind of a thing that science fiction uh, people are less perhaps open to than fantasy people, in a way. Um, and so Kat's theme issue uh, of Apex would seem to fit there quite nicely, and uh, and obviously I'm very happy to have it on, on Starship Sofa as well. 
So, has the big question, has it put you off writing? Because I hope it hasn't. Has it put you off writing for science fiction? You know, is your niche the fantasy, or do you not mind really going anywhere? Um, you know, it hasn't put me off. I'm just sort of uh, by disposition. Um, you know, I have big gaps in my reading, even within the genres, and uh, and and they're mostly in science fiction. I'm, I'm I've always been in essence, a fantasy reader. And so that's probably why I'm a fantasy writer um, with maybe the uh, the marginal case of, of, of superheroes, which are also kind of one of my big, uh, big. you know, I, I've been reading superheroes since, since I was a little kid, but whether they're classified as science fiction or fantasy depends who you ask. So, um, But as far as kind of classic science fiction, uh, I, I had not read a lot of that growing up, and I'm just kind of starting to school myself in it now. So that's really what's behind my not writing a lot of it. And I'm also, uh, um, uh, I don't have a very <laughs> good understanding of science. In a lot of ways, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a magical thinker. <laughs> and uh, so it makes sense that uh, I, I write from that perspective more easily than I do uh, with a kind of, uh, you know, strict adherence to the laws of physics. <laughs> Is writing, you know, the, the actual skill of writing, is that easy for you? Or is it, is it, again, one of these, you know, you hear these writers where it's just like cutting veins to try and get the words on the on the computer screen? You know, these days, I think uh, more than anything else, it's, uh, it's about carving out time and having the kind of time and space to do it. Um, when I actually sit down and get motivated to do it, uh, it, it, it tends to flow pretty easily. Although, you know, what comes out in the first draft always needs to be fixed because there's always huge flaws but uh i'm not one of these people who um <clears throat> who just finds it really brutally hard to write uh but i'm a lazy person by inclination <laughs> and uh these days with the with the kids and with work and stuff i'm also somebody without a lot of free time on my hands so it's kind of forcing uh forcing myself to have time and space but once i do that you know the, the pages tend to fill up fairly quickly how, just out personal, how old are the twins? Uh, eight months. Oh. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Time yeah. is of the essence there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so how, depending on how sensitive the microphone is, you might hear one of them crying oh. in the next room. Right <laughs> how do you actually do the writing then? If you've, you know, because like you say, I've, well, I've had two kids, you know, Ellie's now... 14, 15, I think, and reads up there nine. So really, I'm, I'm yeah. okay. And how how do you get the time with twins? Well, uh, I mean, I'm fortunate. My wife is, is very supportive. Uh, right now, um, and really for the past year or so, as the writing has been taking off, um, I've been working essentially part-time. So I, I uh, am an adjunct uh, teacher at uh, Rutgers University in New Jersey, uh, I'm out there a couple days a week, and then I'm home here with the kids a couple days a week, uh, which usually gives me a day or two each week that can be kind of dedicated to writing. Um, I'm right now uh, ostensibly uh, churning out uh, book two for the, the DAW series that, uh, that I've sold, um, but uh, it, is, it is a challenge finding the time to do it. And then, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of started to get things like invitations to short story anthologies, which is a new thing for me. I'm used to kind of going around begging people to publish <laughs> my stories. And, and now I'm, I'm, I'm starting to have people come to me and say, would you like to give us a story? And uh, uh, kind of picking and choosing uh, where to put one's energy is, it is, it is a big challenge. It's a huge challenge. 
So you you just mentioned there, and I didn't realise this. You've you've got have you got a book out? Are you writing now for Door? Uh, I, I don't have the book out. It's coming out January two thousand and twelve. Looks like the tentative publication date. But uh, but yeah, I sold a, a three book series uh, uh, this summer um, to Betsy Wolheim at Daw. Uh, the first book is is uh, done. Um, you know, there's some copy edits and stuff to do, but, uh, uh, and I'm working right now on, on books two and three for that series. So, so without giving too much away then, is that back in the, the, the fantasy genre side of things? It is, yeah. Um, I've, uh, I've published a couple stories in this world, one in a Beneath Ceaseless Skies and one in an Intergalactic Medicine show. And, uh, uh, it's essentially a kind of, a heroic fantasy world within Arabian Nights theme. And uh, uh, all, all three of the books take place in that world. So kind of uh, both embracing some of the heroic fantasy archetypes and tropes and then also trying to put some of them on their head as well. So, for instance, I have a, a grumpy old man as my, my main protagonist rather than a, a young man discovering himself and some, some spins like that. Um, as well as the kind of Middle Eastern stuff, but uh, but in its essence, it's basically kind of heroic fantasy. And is is everything going okay with with that? You know, is, is it different to writing the short stories? Well, you know, it's interesting. I actually, when I first wanted to get into genre writing, as I say, for the first time since at least just doing it amateurly in high school, uh, my, my first thought was writing a novel. I didn't know a lot about the short fiction markets. And uh, I went to a workshop uh, called Tao's Toolbox that Walter John Williams teaches, and uh, he's just a, a masterful teacher. Um, and uh, he and some of the students there kind of talked about, I had a, a, you know some very rough ideas in a few chapters of the novel, and they kind of suggested dabbling in short fiction as well as a way to kind of hone skills and, and also to explore this world and things like that. And so my first aim was always a novel, uh, and I, I kind of... The more I wrote short fiction, the more I enjoyed it and, um, and you know, managed to publish here and there. So I got that kind of validation. Um, but the novel is, uh, you know, it's, it's um, much more grueling in some ways. It's never-ending. You write a <laughs> short story and you've got a draft done in a week or so. You know, you show it to some people, you fix it up, and, and you've got something ready to go in a pretty short time frame, whereas a novel is more like a year-long project, and, uh, and that's... I'm, I'm somebody who likes instant gratification, so it's uh, it's hard for me. I was going to ask you that: is where does the, the novel and the short stories lie with you? Then do you have to try and get this novel now finished if you if you're actually writing on it at this moment, or can you take a break from novel writing and just like say bash out a, a story in a week and come back to your novel? Well, the difference is that uh, um, you know, for the first time in my life. Somebody's paying me money up front, <laughs> saying uh, you need to write this book by this date, and uh, you know that's a, that's a whole other ball game. So certainly the novel is at the front of the line and at the top of the list of priorities. Um, as I say, I've gotten a couple invitations from selling the novel. Some anthologies I'd really like to be involved in. So um, and and you know the short fiction is also just a kind of break from being relentlessly immersed in this one world. So. I would like to uh, carve out time to do a short story here and there, but uh, you know the, the bulk of my energy is definitely going to be uh, in getting books two and three of this series done. Well, Saladin, I wish you all the best in the future with your writing. Honestly, it's just 
like I say, I'd, I've stumbled across you there, and I just think it's stunning. Thank you so much for coming on Starship so far. Thank you so much for having me, Tony. I appreciate it. You look after yourself. You be well. I'll talk to you soon. The story is narrated by Rajan Khanna. Now, actually, Rajan is a member of that writer's workshop as well, and he's done a number of narrations for Starships over, and we've got some in the pipeline as well. So I'll put a link on to Rajan's site. Do pop over there and say hello. So the Starship Sova and her oral delight is very proud to present. The Faithful Soldier Prompted by Saladin Ahmed If I die on this piece of shit road, Lumna's chances die with me. Ali leveled his shotgun at the growling tiger. In the name of God who needs no credit rating, let me live. Even when he'd been a soldier, Ali hadn't been very religious. But facing death brought the old invocations to mind. The sway of culture, educated Lubna would have called it, if she were here, if she could speak. The creature stood still on the split cement, watching Ali. Nanohan's tigers had been more or less wiped out in the great hunts before the global credit crusade, or so Ali had heard. I guess this is the shit end of more or less. More proof as if he needed it that traveling the old Cairo road on foot was as good as asking to die. He almost thought he could hear the creature's targeting system were but of course he couldn't, any more than the tiger could read the vestigial OS prompt that flashed across Ali's supposedly deactivated ret screens. God willing, faithful soldier, you will report for uniform inspection at 0500 hours. Ali ignored the out-of-date message, kept his gun trained on the creature. The tiger crouched to spring. Ali squeezed the trigger, shouted, God is greater than credit! The cry of a younger man, from the days when he'd let stupid causes use him, the days before he'd met Lubna. A sputtering spurt of shot sprayed the creature. The tiger roared, bled, and fled. For a moment, Ali just stood there panting. Praise be to God, he finally said to no one in particular. I'm coming, beloved. I'm going to get you your serum, and then I'm coming home. A day later, Ali still walked the old Cairo road alone, the wind whipping stinging sand at him, making a mockery of his old army-issued sand mask. As he walked, he thought of home, a free Beirut and his humble house behind the jade and grey marble fountain. At home, a medbed hummed quietly, keeping Lubna alive though she lay dying from the green devil, which one side or the other's hover-dustings had infected her with during the GCC. At home, Lubna breathed shallowly, while Ali's ex-squadmate, Fat Man Farad, the only man in the world he still trusted, stood watch over her. Yet Ali had left on this madman's errand, left the woman who mattered more to him than anything on Earth's scorched surface. Serum was her only hope, but serum was devastatingly expensive, and Ali was broke. Every bit of money he had made working the hover docks or doing security for shops had gone to prepay days on Lubna's medbed, and there was less and less work to be had. He'd begun having dreams that made him wake crying, dreams of shutting down Lubna's medbed, of killing himself. And then the first strange message had appeared behind his eyes. Like God alone knew how many vets, Ali's ostensibly inactive OS still garbled forth a glitchy old prompt from time to time. God willing, faithful soldier, you will pick up your new field ablution kit after your debriefing today. God willing, faithful soldier, you will spend your leave time dinars wisely at Honest Majudis. But this new message had been unlike anything Ali had ever seen, blood freezingly current in its subject matter. God willing, faithful soldier, you will go to the charity yard of the Western Mosque in Old Cairo. She will live. 
Ali's attention snapped back to the present as the wind picked up and the air grew thick with the sand. As storms went, it was mild, but it still meant he'd have to stop until it blew over. He reluctantly set up the rickety rig shelter that the fat man had lent him. He crawled into it and lay there alone with the wail of the wind, the stink of his own body, and his exhausted, sleepless thoughts. When the new prompt had appeared, Ali had feared he was losing his mind. More than one vet had lost theirs, had sworn that their OS had told them to slaughter their family. Ali had convinced himself that the prompt was random, an illustration of the one in a trillion chance that such a message could somehow be produced by error. But it had repeated itself, every night for a week. He told the fat man about it, expected the grizzled old shit-talker to call him crazy, half wanted to be called crazy, but Farad had shrugged and said, Love it, I've seen a few things in my time. God who needs no credit rating can do the impossible. I don't talk about this shit with just anyone, of course. Not these days, beloved. Religion, humph. But maybe you should go. Things sure ain't gonna get any better here, and you know I'll watch over Lubna like my own daughter. So now Ali found himself following a random, impossible promise. It was either this or wait for the medbed's inevitable shutdown sequence and watch Lubna die, her skin shriveling before his eyes, her eye whites turning bright green. After a few hours, the storm died down. Ali picked up his rig shelter and set back to walking the ruined old Cairo road, chasing a digital dream. There was foot traffic on the road now, not just the occasional hover cluster zipping overhead. It was finally nearing the city. He had to hurry. If he was gone too long, Ali could count on the fat man to provide a few days of coverage for Lubna, but Farad was as poor as Ali. Time was short. Running out of time without knowing what I'm chasing. Ali blocked out the mocking words his own mind threw at him. He took a long sip from his canteen and quickened his pace. Eventually the road crested a dune and old Cairo lay spread before him, the bustling hover dock of Nile River Station, the silvery spires of Alizar 2.0, the massive moisture pits like aquamarine jewels against the city's sand-brown skin. Lubna had been here once on a university trip, Ali recalled. His thoughts went to her again, to his house behind the jade and gray marble fountain, but he herded them back to the here and now. Focus. Find the western mosque. The gate guards took his rifle and eyed him suspiciously, but they let him pass. As he made his way through the city, people pressed in on every side. Ali had always thought of himself as a city man, He'd laughed at various village bumpkin-turned-soldier types back when he'd been in the army. But old Cairo made him feel like a bumpkin. He'd never seen so many people, not even in the vibrant, free Beirut of his childhood. He blocked them out as best he could. He walked for two hours, asking directions of a smelly fruit seller and two different students. Finally, when dusk was dissipating into dark, he stood before the western mosque. It was old and looked it. The top half of the thick red minaret had long ago been blown away by some army that hadn't feared God. Ali passed through the high wall's open gate into the mosque's charity yard, which was curiously free of paupers. God willing, faithful soldier, you will remember to always travel with a squad mate when leaving the caravanserai. Peace and prosperity, brother, can I help you? The brown, jowly man that had snuck up on Ali's flank was obviously one of the imams of the western mosque. His middle-aged face was furrowed in scrutiny. Ali stood there, unable to speak. He had made it to Old Cairo, to the charity yard of the Western Mosque, as the prompt said, and now Ali didn't know what he hoped to find. A vial of serum suspended in a pillar of light? The sky splitting and a great hand passing down cure money? He was exhausted. He'd faced sandstorms and a tiger to get here, had nearly died beneath the rot-blackened claws of toxigools. He'd travel for two weeks, surviving on little food and an hour's sleep here and there. 
He started to wobble on his feet. Why had he come here? Lubna was going to die and he wouldn't even be there to hold her. The imam stared at Ali, still waiting for an explanation. Ali swallowed, his cracked throat burning. I... I... I'm my OS. It... His knees started to buckle and nearly collapsed. It told me to come here. From Free Bay. No money. Had to walk. They were a madman's words, and Ali hardly believed they were coming from his own mouth. Truly? You walked all that way? And lived to tell the tale? I didn't know such a thing was possible. The imam looked at Ali with a concerned distaste and put a hand on his shoulder. Well, the charity yard is closing tonight for cleaning, but I suppose one foreign beggar won't get in the way too much. You can sleep in safety here, brother, and we can talk about your OS tomorrow. Ali felt himself fading. He needed rest, food. Even a vet like him could only go so long. He sank slowly to the ground and slept. In his sleep, he saw the bloody bodies of friends and children. He saw his squadmates slicing the ears off dead men. He heard a girl cry as soldiers closed in around her. He woke screaming as he had once done every night. His heart hammered. It had been a long time since he'd had dreams of the war. When they were first married, Lubna would soothe him, and they would step into the cool night air and sit by the jade and gray marble fountain. Eventually the nightmares had faded, her slender hand on the small of his back, night after night. This had saved his life. And now he would never see her again. He had abandoned her because he thought God was talking to him. Thinking on it, his eyes began to burn with tears. God willing, faithful soldier, you will deactivate the security scrambler on the wall before you. She will live. Ali sucked in a shocked breath and forgot his self-pity. His pulse racing, he scrambled to his feet. He looked across the dark yard at the green glowing instrument panel set in the mosque's massive gate. But he did not move. God willing, faithful soldier, you will deactivate the security scrambler on the wall before you. She will live. The prompt flashed a second time across his red screens. I've lost my mind. But even as he thought it, he walked toward the wall. Screenjacking had never been Ali's specialty, but from the inside interface, the gate's security scrambler was simple enough to shut down. Anyone who'd done an army hitch or a security detail could do it. Ali's fingers danced over the screen, and a few seconds later, it was done. Then a chorus of angry shouts erupted and an alarm system began droning away. Two men in black dashed out of the mosque and passed him, each carrying an ornate jewelry box. Thieves. By the time he decided to stop them, they had crossed the courtyard. He scrambled toward them, trying not to think about his being unarmed. Behind him, he heard the familiar clatter of weapons and body armor. "'Thanks for the help, cousin,' one of the thieves shouted at Ali. Ali was near enough to smell their sweat when they each tapped their H-belts and hover-jumped easily over the descrambled wall. "'Infiltrators waiting for their chance. They used me somehow,' he panicked." What have I done? His stomach sank. They've been using my OS all along. How and why did they call him all the way from Free Bay? He didn't know, and it didn't matter. I'm screwed. He had to get out of here. Somehow he had to get back to Lubna. He turned to look toward the mosque, and found himself staring down the barrel of the Jowli Imam's rifle. The holy man spit at Ali. Motherless scum! Do you know how much they've stolen? You helped them get out, huh? And your pals left you behind to take their fall? Don't worry, the police will catch them too. You won't face execution alone. He kept the weapon trained on Ali's head. Ali knew a shooter when he saw one. This was not good. I didn't, Ali started to say, but he knew it was useless. A squad of mosque guardsmen trotted up. They scowled almost jovially as they closed in. Ali didn't dare fight these men, who could only call on more. He'd done enough security jobs himself to know they wouldn't listen to him, at least not until after they'd beaten him. He tensed himself and took slaps and punches. He yelped, and they raked his eyes for it. 
He threw up, and they punched him for it. His groin burned from kicks, and he lost two teeth. Then he blacked out. He woke in a cell with four men in uniforms different from the mosque guards. Kyrene police? They gave him water. God willing, faithful soldier, you will report to QB7. Ali ignored the prompt. The men slapped him around half-heartedly and made jokes about his mother's sexual tastes. Again, he pushed down the angry fighter within him. If he got himself killed by these men, he would never see Lubna again. They dragged him into the dingy office of their sheikh captain. The old man was scraggly and fat, but hard. A vet, unless Ali missed his guess. Tell me about your friends, the sheikh captain said. Ali started to explain about being framed, but then found the words wouldn't stop. Something had knocked loose within him these past few days. He talked and talked and told the old man the truth. All of the truth. About Lubna and the messages. About leaving free Beirut. About the toxicals and the tiger, the western mosque and the thieves. When he was done, he lowered his eyes, but he felt the old man glare at him for a few long, silent moments. Ali raised his gaze slowly and saw a sardonic smile spread over the sheikh captain's face. A prompt? Half the guys with an OS still get him. What do they mean? Nothing. I got one that said I fucked your mother last night. Did she wake up pregnant? The men behind Ali chuckled. In the army, Ali had hated the Kyrenes and their moronic mother jokes. Sometimes I don't even know where the words come from, the old man went on. Random old satellite squawking? Some head hacker having a laugh? Who knows? And who gives a shit? I got one a couple weeks back that told me to find some guy named Ali who was supposed to tell me about great riches lying buried beneath the jade and gray marble fountain. For a moment, Ali listened uncomprehendingly. Then he thought his heart would stop. He did everything he could to keep his face straight as the sheikh captain continued. Do you know how many fountains like that there are here in O.C.? And how many sons of bitches named Ali? What's your name anyway, fool? My name? Uh, uh, my name is Farad, sheikh captain, and I... Shut up! I was saying I told my wife about this prompt, and she said I should go around the city digging up fountains, as if I don't got enough to do here. He gestured vaguely at a pile of text cards on his desk. In the army, I told her, I got a prompt telling me about some pills that could make my dick twice as long. Did I waste my pay on them? The old man gave Ali an irritated look. You know, you and my wife, you two fucking mystics would like each other. Maybe you could go to her old broad's tea hour and tell them all about your prompts. Maybe she'd even believe your donkey shit story about walking here from the north. The sheikh captain stood slowly, walked over to the wall, and pulled down an old-fashioned truncheon. But before the tea house, we have to take you back downstairs for a little while. Ali felt big hard hands take hold of him, and he knew that this was it. He was half dead already. He couldn't survive an old Cairo-style interrogation. He would never see Lubna again. He had failed her, and she would die a death as horrible as anything he'd seen in the war. Faithful soldier, she will live. The prompt flashed past his ret screens, and he thought again of the sheikh captain's words about riches and the fountain. This was no head hacker's trick, no thieves' scheme. He did not understand it, but God had spoken to him. He could not dishonor that. He had once served murderers and madmen who claimed to act in God's name. But Lubna, brilliant, loving Lubna, had shown him that this world could hold holiness. If Ali could not see her again, if he could not save her, he could at least face his death with faith. He made his voice as strong as he could, and he held his head high as he uttered words that would seal his fate with these men. In the name of God, who needs no credit rating, Sheikh Captain, do what you must. But I am not lying. The Sheikh Captain's eyes widened, and a twisted smile came to his lips. So that's it! In the name of your mother's pussy, you superstitious fool! The big men behind Ali grumbled their southern disgust at the fact of Ali's existence, and started shoving him, but the old man cut them off with a hand gesture. 
He set down the truncheon, pulled at his dirty gray beard, assumed a mocked gravity. A genuine free Shia anti-creditier. The scourge of the global credit crusaders. Hard times for your kind these days, even up north, I hear. The shake captain snorted, but there was something new in the man's voice. Something almost human. You think you're a brave man, a martyr to show your true colors down here, huh? <laughs> well, you can stop stroking your own dick on that count. No one down here gives a damn about those days anymore. At this city was on your side of things once. Truth be told, my fuck-faced fool of a little brother was one of you. He kept fighting that war when everyone knew it was over. He's dead now. A fool, like I say. Me? I face reality. Now look at me. The old man spread his arms as if his shabby office was a palace, his two goons, gorgeous wives. He sat on the edge of his desk and gave Ali another long look. But you, you're stuck in this fanatical past, huh? You know, I believe this story about following your OS is actually true. Not a robber, just an idiot. You're as pathetic as my brother was, a dream-chasing relic. You really walked down the OC road? Ali nodded but said nothing. A sympathetic flash lit the shake captain's eyes, but he quickly grimaced, as if the moment of fellow feeling caused him physical pain. Well, my men will call me soft, but what the fuck? You've had a rough enough trip down here, I suppose. Tell you what, we'll get you a corner and steerage on a hover cluster, okay? Those northbound flights are always half empty anyway. Go be with your wife, asshole. Ali could not quite believe what he was hearing. Thank you. Thank you, shake captain. In the name of, in the name of your mother's hairy tits... Shut up and take your worn old expressions back to your falling apart city. Boys, get this butt-fucked foreigner out of my office. Give him a med patch, maybe. Some soup. And don't mess him up too bad, huh? The big men gave him a low-grade med patch, which helped. And they fed him lentil soup and pita. Then they shoved him around again a bit, but not enough to matter. When they were through, they hurled him into the steerage line at the hover docks. Ali was tired and hurt and thirsty. Both his lips were split and his guts felt like jelly. But war had taught him how to hang on when there was a real chance of getting home. Riches buried beneath the jade and grey marble fountain. Cure money. Despair had weakened him, but he would find the strength to make it back to Lubna. He would watch as she woke, finally free of disease. Faithful soldier, you will. The prompt cut off abruptly. Ali boarded the hover cluster and headed home to his beloved. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Saladin Ahmed. Saladin, thank you so much. Honestly, your writing's just amazing. Excellent stuff. What a show. So that is Oral Delights, show 163. Hope you enjoyed it. I certainly have. What else can I mention? Well, I've been with the sales of Volume 2. I'll mention this a little bit more in detail because I think it's about time or coming up into the future. I'll do like a, a meta cast where it's really no fiction, anything like that. It's just me thoughts and just the way the show is going and, you know, what I'm doing with the show, what I've been doing with the money that, you know, Volume 2's raised. But I've been investing in some equipment for Starship Sofa, so that's part of what Star, you know, the Volume 2 has been going at, what we've been spending. Like I say, there's a lot of things that I want to do with the show. I've got ideas, but if you've got some ideas, get in touch. Honestly, it's it literally is nothing's really impossible. You know, all our talents out there, you know, I'm the one really... <laughs> That's gone. Booker all in talents. Do you know what I mean? Whatever. I can do this. Blah, 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 blah. Honestly, 
People, you know, out there, if you've got an idea, get in touch. We can make Starship Sova great. Do you know what I mean? Obviously, it's great now, but we can even make it greater. So do drop us an email if you've got any ideas. Do support Starship Sova. Do you know what I mean? Get yourselves volume two. Get yourselves volume one. Everybody that's, you know, went out there and bought that. Thank you so much. It's what's making Starships over great. Do you know what I mean? you just amazing people. Thank you so much. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A valuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.